Welcome back to the G-Truth, and I gotta say, that intro music was pretty nice. I think so, I think it's pretty cool. Um, but I, I want to start off this episode uh, on a more sort of uh, somber, more kind of mellow uh, note. I want to apologize for any comments that I made um, two episodes ago in my episode about the trades going on, the trades going on in the NBA, my my first episode on that, and the comment that I made saying that the that the NBA is quote unquote rigged. Now the way that I try to pass it off as was more like joking. I did not intend for it to be saying the NBA is rigged, but I wanted I was trying to make it a joke, you know. Um, so hopefully you can take that as, you know, uh, the way that I try to pass it off as. But then also at the same time, when you look at it and you look at the NBA's history in, in the draft, because so, I was talking more about the draft rather than, you know, games per se. Um, for, for the draft, you have uh, two drafts ago. You have the Celtics, Lakers, and 76ers with the top three picks. Those are all big market teams. A uh, huge scandal way back was when the Knicks got the first overall pick and they did not have huge uh, chances of getting the, the first overall pick, and they got it. And there's a whole sort of controversy on that. So what I meant to say, and hopefully you listeners can... Uh, take this and understand what I'm trying to say is that the NBA favors the higher market teams and you'll see a lot of things go to the way of the higher market teams rather than lower market teams like in this case the Pelicans uh, or the Suns even though even though the Suns got the number one overall pick uh, this past year it's Hard to see that happening for a long time. And also the NBA uh, favors or leans more towards teams that are more on the up and up and have more story around them. Like for the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, after, um, after and before LeBron arrived, the first time and the second time, where they got the number number one overall pick to draft Kyrie Irving. They got the, the number one overall pick to draft Anthony Bennett. They got the number one overall pick to draft LeBron James. And they got, if not a number one overall pick, a really high pick, which they traded away to get Kevin Love, but that would have been for Andrew Wiggins. So I'm just saying that there are a lot of things in the NBA especially when it comes to the draft, because that's where all the young players come from, all the hype comes from, that leans more to the big market teams as well as the teams that have a lot of hype around them or a lot of excitement or or some sort of high expectations or some sort of interesting news around them rather than teams like the Suns, Timberwolves, 
teams like that where they have to get lucky every once in a while and they'll get it. Or they just have to be really, really bad. It's not always like that, but hopefully you guys understand what I'm trying to say. Anyways, to the topic at well topics at hand that I want to try to talk about. So first and foremost, James Harden and Russell Westbrook both had historic numbers and stat lines this past week. Harden has had thirty. James Harden. Let me clarify that. James Harden has had thirty straight games with over. 30 points. 30 or more points. Let's put it that way. Russell Westbrook has had 10 straight games with a triple-double. The original record was held by Wilt Chamberlain at 9. Russell Westbrook passed that, putting the new mark at 10. Now, James Harden has a ways to go to get to Wilt Chamberlain's record of consecutive games of scoring 30 or more points. His is, I believe, 65 or something like that. Harden right now is at 30. So he's not halfway there yet, but he's making this progress. But I want to run through some numbers because I believe that Russell Westbrook's numbers and his stat line of having 10 triple-doubles in a row is far... Well, not far, but it is more impressive, to me at least, than James Harden putting up his own historic stats. So I'm starting off with James Harden. Over that 30-game stretch, he's averaging 41.5 points per game. That is insanely good. But his plus-minus averaging from all those 30 games is 5.5. That's not great. And he is averaging 12 made free throws, so that lends a lot to his points. But even if you subtract that away, you're still left with 29.5 points, which I believe is you know, pretty good. However, when you dive into the efficiency of how he's doing that, to an entire efficiency of how he's putting up his stats, putting up these insane numbers... You look at three-point percentage and field goal percentage. His field goal percentage is at 44%, which means that it it basically means that he's not shooting at 50%. He's shooting below that, and it's not very efficient. Let's put it that way. Put it in very simple terms. Three-point percentage is at 37.5. He's shooting a bit over 15 threes a game. In that 30-game stretch. In that 30-game stretch. He's making 5 to 6 of them. 5.7. And that goes up to 37.5% 3-point percentage. That's not great. That shows that he's a volume shooter. Not a great shooter. So, although it looks great that he had 29.5 points taking away all his free throws... If that gets taken away, that's 29.5 points on 27 shot attempts, which is shooting at 44%. 
Does that sound very efficient to you? It does not to me. And I'm focusing on that specifically rather than his other numbers because his historical stat line for this whole run is based on scoring. It's great that it's great that he's doing this. It's great that he's putting up 41.5 points per game. But my criticism has to do with efficiency. His team is 20 his team is 21 and 9 over that 30 game interval, which is good. It's good. But when I compare that to Russell Westbrook's numbers, pull it up. He's averaging almost 20 points per game over that stretch, over that 10-game stretch. He's not shooting the ball crazy well. He's actually shooting it worse than Harden. He's shooting a bit under 40%. He's shooting uh, 25.7% from the three. He's shooting horribly from the free throw line. But that's not, that's not what we're looking at for him, right? We're looking at triple doubles. In his case, it's points, rebounds, assists. So almost 20 points per game. Four, nearly 14 assists per game. And a bit over 13 rebounds per game. Now you can go and say, Russell Westbrook's a stat patter. You can say that. But I can say the same thing about James Harden. I admit, there are times where I look at Russell Westbrook and I see him stat padding. Especially his rebounds. His, his assists, I don't see him stat padding as much, as, as much anymore. He starts looking for the open guy now. Rather than going into the paint and saying, I can't really do much. Uh, here, I'm going to give it to Steven Adams, the big guy. He's going to lay it up. Cool, I got an assist. I don't see him doing that anymore. Especially with Paul George there. Now, if I look at James Harden and what he's done, it's a lot less efficient than what Russell Westbrook does. Russell Westbrook, at the same time, also does a lot more rebounding. For a guard to have pretty much 13 rebounds per game is insane. It is insane. Some of those, like I admitted can be stat padding, where he can say, everyone just go down the floor, let me get this rebound. Let me get this long three rebound. Let me, let me get this rebound off a missed layup. Let me get this rebound off a missed three. Stuff like that. But he's also a tough rebounder. He knows how to, how to position himself, and he fights for the ball every single time, which is why I really like him as a player, because he never gives up. You rarely see any quit on his face, in his body, in his body language. He's always going to give you 100%. Now when I look at James Harden, I can see him stat padding. His past game against, against Dallas, they won by 16, but they were up by 12, 14, 15 points with five minutes left. A bit less than five minutes left, actually. He was at around 21 points. He stayed in the game. And he was the only person to shoot for that whole stretch within those last few minutes for the Rockets. He didn't pass at all. He shot it. He was the only person to shoot it on the whole Rockets team. 
to get him to 31 points for that game. And as soon as he got there, he he uh he had Mike D'Antoni take him out of the game. So I can easily say the same thing about James Harden's stat padding. And especially with the free throws that he's had. Yeah, I can say that he's been stat padding. But at the same time, Russell Westbrook receives a whole lot of criticism for uh, not making his teammates better because he rebounds the ball way too much. Big guys don't get the rebound as much. And then really, Stephen Adams has had some of his stats fall down over Russell Westbrook's 10-consecutive 10, 10 game triple-double streak. But at the same time, you also look at players like Dennis Schroeder, Paul George, Jeremy Grant, Terrence Ferguson, who have played spectacularly, spectacular, over this 10-game interval. Dennis Schroeder, averaging 17.2 points per game, which is an increase over his season average for this season of 15.7 points. He's also shooting the ball better. He's shooting at 51.3% over this 10-game interval as opposed to 42.6%, which is his season average. He's shooting shooting the three-ball better, nearly shooting 49% as opposed to 36%. That's a 13% increase. Does Russell Westbrook have credit for that? He doesn't get that, but I believe he should, which is why I believe why his his streak is a lot more impressive. Like, let's look at Paul George as well during this whole stretch. He's averaging 37 points per game in this stretch, shooting at 50%. From the field as well as from three. And he's having 8.5 rebounds per game. Now, if we look at his season average, his points per game is less, his rebounds per game is less. And his field goal percentage and his three-point percentage is less for the season. Which means that during this Russell Westbrook streak, Dennis Schroeder's and Paul George's numbers have been increased? That can't be a coincidence. That can't. Let's look at Jeremy Grant. Let's look at his numbers as well, throughout this whole time. With Russell Westbrook going on this streak. 14.3 points, 5.4 rebounds. Shooting over 50% from the field, and over 55.6. Actually, no, equal to 55.6 percent from three that is crazy good that is crazy good and the thing that we can expect that all of the season average averages for all of those categories that i just mentioned are lower so again is it a coincidence that these three players and i'll name it uh, and i'll give another one who's in the starting rotation terrence ferguson now, I think that Terrence Ferguson, especially during this whole run of Russell Westbrook's, that he's been playing spectacularly, shooting the ball really, really well, and defensively as well, he's been playing out of his mind. 
He's averaging 10.8 points during the stretch. 51.3% from the field. 39.1% from three. His season averages 6.8% points per game. That's far lower than his than his 10 plus points per game under Russell Westbrook's streak and he's shooting 44.3% from the field and 38.7% from 3 his numbers have increased with Westbrook at the helm going through this whole streak this is why i believe that Westbrook's historical stat line as opposed to Harden's, is far more impressive. As well, it's, it is the first time that this has ever happened. Wilt Chamberlain has done what Harden is doing. And has surpassed it. Russell Westbrook surpassed Wilt Chamberlain, who originally held the record for most consecutive triple-doubles in a season. Consecutive. So that is my opinion on the whole Harden-Westbrook historical stat line. Next, I want to talk about two games that I think are, are very important. The Los Angeles Lakers against the Atlanta Hawks game, as well as the Boston Celtics against the Philadelphia 76ers game last night. So I'm going to start with the Lakers and the Hawks game. The Hawks improved to... 19 wins and 38 losses after beating the Lakers 117 to 113 and the Lakers dropped to 28 and 29 below 500 and that is the first time that LeBron has been on a team that has been below 500 at least halfway through the season since God knows when so for me that was Insane to see that that the Lakers, a LeBron-led team, are below 500 at this point in the season. They're they're not a great away team, but I'm I'm gonna dive into why I believe that they lost, and it's super easy right here. It's been their kryptonite for the whole season. It has been free throws. Free throws. The Atlanta Hawks shot 80.8% from the free throw. The Lakers, on the other hand, shot 68%. They both took nearly the same, same amount of free throws. The Lakers took 25 free throws. The Hawks took 26. The difference in free throws made? Four points. Four points. That's the difference. And that was the difference in the score as well. The Atlanta Hawks made 21 free throws. The Los Angeles Lakers made 17. That was literally the whole difference. They shot similar from three. The Hawks made two more threes. They had 10 threes in the first half alone. And then cooled off. They both made the same, roughly the same amount of shots. Which makes sense since since the score was so close. But it's the free throws. 
They're not a good free throw team. Their best free throw shooter was Avika Zubac, who they traded away. Who they traded away for Mike Muscala. And I and I like the trade from a shooting standpoint. But you don't trade away your best free throw shooter. And first of all, your best free throw shooter should not be a freaking center. It should not be a sh- a center at all. It shouldn't. Now, LeBron posted up a stat line of a triple-double. Let me read it off. It was 28 points, 11 rebounds, 16 assists. I love the assists. 16 assists, I love it. And only two turnovers, I love it. However, points-wise, it wasn't really efficient at all. He had 28 points on... Uh, 20 shots. Half of those shots came from the three-point land, where he shot 30%. So that's three, three made three-pointers. He made three, he made three three-pointers out of 10 three-point shots. The only reason why his score was that high was because, was because he made nine free throws out of 11 free throw attempts. That's got to be one of, one of his best free throw shooting games of the whole season since he's been having a pretty horrendous free throw shooting season so far. Now, people will say, ah, oh, he doesn't have any help. He doesn't have any help. Poor LeBron. Wait, 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 wait. But, look, in, look into it a bit further. Brandon Ingram had 19 points. Shooting the ball 50%. Let him do his thing. Let him do his thing. Kyle Kuzma also had 19 points. He took the same he, he took and made the same, same amount of shots as LeBron. He took one less three-point shot though. But the one difference was he didn't get to the free throw line not once. He did not get to the free throw line once. He shot zero free throws, whereas LeBron shot 11 free throws and made a 9. If Kyle Kuzma gets to the line, Lakers probably win this. They probably do. But that's the kryptonite that they have. Where they are not able to get to the free throw line consistently, as well as consistently make shots. This loss, that should have been... It should have been a walk into Atlanta, win the game, easily, blowout. It should have been that. This now puts them two and a half games back from the eighth seed. And I got to tell you, they got a tough schedule coming up. They're, I think I read somewhere, 14 of their, of, of their, of the, of the teams that they face, in the remainder of their season, have above 500 records. It's going to be a nail-biter. It's going to be tough for the Lakers to creep into the playoffs. And I'm going to tell you, they're, they're not going to beat the Spurs for, for a playoff spot. They're, they're going to have to fight for that eight seed. And guess who they're going to end up playing when, when, they, when and if they get that eight seed? If they get that eight seed.
they will, they will be playing. Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. The Golden State Warriors. That's who they'd be playing. And they'd probably lose. I bet my money that they would lose that series. So it does not look pretty for them at all. Heading into the final stretch of trying to get into the playoffs. The second game that I want that I want to talk about and probably the more impactful game than the Lakers and Hawks game is the Boston Celtics in the Phil in the Philadelphia 76ers game. The Celtics won 112 to 109. And yeah, I can talk about from this game how great the Celtics played, how great their young core played without Kyrie Irving, how they played in the clutch, which I want to actually talk about a whole lot more but without a, a closer, really. I can talk about how uh, Marcus Morris put up seven. Okay, let me say Marcus Morris Sr. because his jersey says that. Put up 17 points. How how Jason Tatum put up a double-double with 20 points and 10 rebounds very efficiently as well. How Al Horford also had a very efficient game of 23 points on 16 shots. And how Gordon Hayward had a resurgence coming off the bench of his days in Utah with 26 points on, get this, 11 shots. I can talk about how efficient they were. They shot as a group 47.1% from the field and 44.8% from three. That is great. That is great. I can I can also talk about how poorly Joel Embiid played. Even, even though he put up 23 points, it was extremely inefficient. 23 points on 22 shots. That's just a bit over one point per shot. Just a bit over. Just a bit. That's not a great shooting percentage, as well as him shooting 25% from three, only making two shots from three out of eight. I get it. He wants, he wants to spread the floor, but at some point in time, you cannot take eight three-pointers if you're a big guy and who I believe is the best center in the NBA, in the whole NBA right now. You cannot do that. He's got to put it on the ground, drive to the paint, pedal to the metal. He'll get fouled. He'll get fouled and score. I don't care who's in the paint. He's He can dominate in the paint against anyone. So I was surprised that he shot the ball from the outside, really, rather than driving into the paint and doing what he does best, which is finish at the rim. However, I, I'm, I'm more focused on the ending of the whole game. How, how the Celtics got to that point. And I, I think a lot of it had to do with Gordon Hayward making tough shots. The uh, Celtics had actually a pretty good lead. They had an eight-point lead several times. But then all of a sudden, Ben Simmons makes a mid-range shot. And Joel Embiid comes down and shoots a three and makes it. It was one of his two three-pointers made. And all of a sudden, it's a three-point game. 
Then all of a sudden, J.J. Reddick gets a technical foul. Jason Tatum makes that free throw. Marcus Smart gets fouled. He makes one of two free throws. And then J.J. Reddick cuts it within two by making a three-pointer. And then Jimmy Butler gets fouled all of a sudden. And he ties it up. 94-94. Six minutes remaining. Jason Tatum, Terry Rozier, both both make fantastic three-point shots to give the Celtics a six-point lead. And that's what really helped the Celtics, is that they were able to, in little, little spurts in the fourth quarter, make a couple threes in a row, which gave them just enough room to kind of keep the 76ers at bay. Ben Simmons, after a while, comes back, makes a floating jump shot, cuts it from six to four. Four minutes left. Jason Tatum comes down, step back, jump shot, makes it. Joel Embiid comes back, driving layup, four-point game. Ben Simmons makes a two-point shot as well. Two-point game now. 102-100 with two and a half minutes left. And then Joel Embiid ties it. He gets the N1 as well. 103-102. Philly regains the lead. Two minutes left. And this is why I say that Gordon Hayward came in and closed the deal. Gordon Hayward hits a three-pointer. Swishes it, actually. Gives the Celtics a two-point lead. Tobias Harris misses a three-point shot. A 27-footer. That's not a good shot. Marcus Morris gets fouled, makes 102 free throws, 106-103, and then it becomes a free throw game after that. So, from just hearing me, you, you can tell that the whole closer of this game was Jason Tatum. He even took the last two free throws for the Celtics to seal the deal. So, he was their quote-unquote closer for the most part. But Gordon Hayward hit the shot that gave him the lead that would push him to a victory. Now for me, looking at this game, I thought that the Celtics would lose. I knew I knew that it was going to be a close game, but I expect I expected them to lose. Admittedly so, I expected them to lose because they are a young team and they do not have a quote-unquote closer. Even though Jason Tatum acted as one last night. But at the same time, I forgot that the 76ers, even though Jimmy Butler's kind of their closer, he's not really known for being a closer. You know that Joel Embiid's not getting the ball because he's a big guy. Big guys aren't usually closers. Tobias Harris, he's new to the team. You really think that he's going to be the closer? Nah. Ben Simmons, he can't shoot. He's not going to be the closer. That leaves Jimmy Butler. And Jimmy Butler failed to close the, to, to, to close the game for the, for, the, for the 76ers. He failed. He had a great game. But when it mattered most in the end, he really, he really didn't get a chance to shoot. He really, he really didn't. He did not get his chance to 
put as many where his mouth is. And have a chance at a game-winning shot. And I thought that I thought that the Celtics would crumble under the pressure and that they would start missing their free throws and all that stuff. But I was surprised. They did really, really well. And after when and after winning that game, they're now in fourth place in the Eastern Conference with Indiana right above them. I, I thought that Indiana would drop maybe to the fifth seed, but they've been playing spectacular without Old Depot. They're currently on a six and winning streak. But I'm focusing on the Celtics and the 76ers. This is a great win for the Celtics, especially for the young team, giving them a sense of confidence boost. Now, this could turn out to be a bit negative if they start getting a bit full of themselves and saying, hey, we don't need you, Kyrie. We're good without you. We can compete. If they start having that attitude, it can be toxic and kind of treading into uh, dangerous waters over there. For the 76ers, this is a matter of just finding a closer. Tobias Harris or Jimmy Butler. It's going to be one of those two guys. Because Joel Embiid, when it comes to at that point, it's hard to make the big guy the closer. Because he requires a lot more finesse. Slower pace. And when it comes into that crunch time where it's, you got to be quick, you got to be fast, you got to shoot quickly. All that stuff. It's hard for a big guy to operate in that. So that's, so that's my takeaway for both teams from this game. All right, now I'm going to move on to the NFL. Because there's been several big stories that have come out, big news topics that have come out regarding the NFL in this offseason with the uh, Alliance of American Football coming out and how that may impact the the NFL as a market, Antonio Brown, probably one of the best wide receivers of all time, officially requesting a trade from the Pittsburgh Steelers. But I want to I want to talk about two important topics. Because one has to do with the future of the NFL, and one has to do with what is right. What is right? So I'm going to start with that one first. And, and I think it's tough to talk about it, but it, it must be talked about. And it must be listened to. must be heard. must be discussed. And that is the case of Kareem Hunt. This past season with the Chiefs, he, he was cut. For one reason, one reason only. Because he lied to the Chiefs about committing... It wasn't really... Domestic violence. I don't think it was classified under that. I think it was classified as assault, maybe. But the Cleveland Browns picked him up on a one-year contract. Football-wise, I think that this is a great move by the Browns. But morally, between right and wrong, I don't. I don't think so. Not not at this moment, at least. I'm a big believer in second chances. And and if you screw up that second chance, well, there's not going to be a third chance. You messed up. You messed up. So that was his first try. This, this is not like baseball where, where you get three tries. No. You get two tries. That's it. So he's got one strike out of the way. He's got one more strike to go, and then he's out. That's not how baseball works, but... 
that's how it's going to work for this case, I guess. But I think that for the Browns and for really any other organization that wants to sign players that have some sort of dark legal history, history with the law, you got to be particularly careful. In this case, I would have liked the Cleveland Browns to wait a little bit to sign Kareem Hunt. Because for free agency to immediately hit, and for the Browns to straight up go and get Kareem Hunt, that validates what he did. And what he did was wrong. It was not right. I I I like the I like the way that the Chiefs handled the situation by cutting him. Some may contend that they should have suspended him or not played him at all. But I'm fine with cutting him. Because it set a moral ground of integrity. Saying we will not tolerate this. We we will not tolerate lying and committing infractions against the law. Stuff like that. Now, I I like what the Browns, as a franchise, are heading to. But I think that they should have just waited just a bit longer on this. Wait wait for the NFL to, to conclude their investigation of the whole Kareem Hunt situation and what he did. All that. Conclude that and dole out uh, the suspension for him. Because there will be a, a suspension. We just don't know how long it will be for. Wait for that to be done. But then also, don't send the wrong message that it's okay. Because we, as analysts, fans, and just as people, we do not know what he's feeling. We don't know if he's remorseful, regrets doing what he did, has reflected, taken the time to reflect on it. And has said to himself, dang, that was messed up what I did. I I came here on earlier for a must a much less way less egregious act. And I apologize for it. I anyway, I didn't do anything bad or anything crazy or anything like that. I I just apologize for a comment that I made. We do not know if Kareem Hunt feels that exact same way with his own situation where he feels like or even realizes that he did wrong. We don't know that. We, we just don't know that. And so for the Browns to pick him up, to sign him, either means that they know that he's remorseful and regrets doing it, and that he can learn from it, and that he has learned from it. It either means that, or that the Browns are just being foolish, and that they're just going after talent right now rather than creating the correct culture. Because we know that in all sports, team sports especially, culture matters. You look, you look at the Warriors. They got a great culture over there, sharing the rocks to everyone. You look at the Patriots, as much as you may hate them, they got a great culture over there. And I know that the jokes are becoming, oh, they got the culture of cheating and stuff like that. I'm not talking about that type of culture. I'm talking about the culture of 
hey, I'll, I'll, I'll take a cut in how much I make so that we can get other guys to get paid. Hey, 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 I'll take a back seat to let other guys shine. Stuff like that. In this case, I think that the Browns sent the wrong message. Now, from a football standpoint, I'm going to take out all the emotion from this. From a football standpoint, this is a great pickup. Cream Hunt is known for being a dual running back. He can run the ball very, very well. He's fast. He's nimble. He's quick. He's agile. He's elusive. All those different things. But he's also a receiving back, which means that he can run out of the backfield and catch a pass and go go the distance with it. He can make plays. And the Browns don't really have that with, with their guys in Duke Johnson and Nick Chubb. This past season, Nick Chubb was their, their primary running back, not Duke Johnson. Nick Chubb had nearly 1,000 rushing yards. 996 to be exact. Averaging 5.2 yards per carry for 8 touchdowns. So that's pretty good. That is pretty good. I, 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 will, I think that's pretty good. But he had just about 150 uh, receiving yards. So he's not really a receiving back. Duke Johnson, on the other hand, not really a... Traditional running back. He had only 201 rushing yards. Now, he was more of a, of a receiving back. He had 430 receiving yards. So, I imagine that's pretty predictable where the ball's going to be going based on who is in who is out for that Browns team. If Duke Johnson's in... You're probably gonna be passing the ball. You're not. You're not gonna be running the ball. He hasn't run the ball that much for the for the Browns this whole season. If you have Nick Shumman, who is more of a power back, you're probably gonna be running the ball because he's a big dude. Now, Kareem Hunt, in only eleven games played, rather than Nick Chubb playing all sixteen games. Kareem Hunt, in only 11 games, had 824 rushing yards. If you do some math right there, that's easily projected. If he plays a full 16 games and he does not get cut by the, by the Chiefs, he easily has over 1,000 rushing yards. Receiving-wise, he had 378 receiving yards this past season while while only playing 11 games. Again, proportion-wise, you do some math right there. That is equal, if not better, than Duke Johnson in in receiving the in, in, in receiving the ball. So I think that adding Cream Hunt from a football standpoint, not from a moral standpoint, from a football standpoint is good for them. Because of the, because it allows them to kind of confuse the defense and throw different looks, and and allows Baker Mayfield, their rising young quarterback, to have more weapons at his disposal. Where 
where he can trust that his running back, if he's under pressure, he can just check it down to, to the running back and the running back can make any play. That's how I feel about the the pickup, both morally and and from a football from a strictly football standpoint. So strictly moral and strictly football standpoint. Last but not least, my final topic for the day for this episode is Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray the Heisman winner quarterback out of Oklahoma out of the Oklahoma Sooners has officially stated that he fully commits to playing in the NFL instead of baseball in the MLB Major League Baseball and I think and I personally think that he made the right choice Health-wise, if he gets knocked up really, really bad, then that's the, that's just the way it goes. Probably, probably will not be good if he gets like concussions left and right, gets extremely injured. But I think that, especially with the rule changes in the NFL, to cater more to offenses and to quarterbacks and protecting quarterbacks. I think that he will be fine safety-wise, health-wise, in the NFL. He will be fine. He will not be severely injured or anything like that. He may get an injury every once in a while, but it won't be horrible. In the MLB, he will probably not be injured really that much. Maybe like finger injury or something like that but I think that this all comes down to money and likeliness of stardom that's what it comes down that's what it comes down to and both of those are very very paralleled so I'm gonna go run through the highest paid players in the MLB and for the NFL for the MLB we have Clayton Kershaw, Mike Trout, Zach Greinke, Jack Arrieta, David Price, Miguel Cabrera, Giannis Cespedes. Those are seven guys right there. Justin Verlander also there. So eight guys. Eight guys. Most of them, most of them are pitchers, except for Mike Trout and. Jonas Cespedes. I got to check on on Miguel Cabrera. He is not a pitcher. So, three out of the eight players that, that I mentioned are not pitchers. Three out of eight. Kyler Murray in baseball plays outfield. Miguel Cabrera plays first baseman. So, it's really only two players that actually play outfield. Mike Trout plays center field, so he's with them there. And same with Giannis Cespedes, who is within the outfielding position. He makes 29 mil through his contract, and Mike Trout 
makes 34.08 mil. Now, those are great players. Those are spectacular players. But with the way that the MLB is set up, you got to be spectacular. You got to be insanely good in order to get that contract, to get that type of contract. Colin Murray, he's a great baseball player on, on the collegiate level. But it's a lot tougher to make in, in the MLB. You, you, you got to go through the minor league baseball system. You got to be able, be able to prove yourself. You might not even play that much in your first year. You might not. And you, and you might not get that contract out of the gate. You might not. So there's a lot more risk. Wealth-wise, income-wise, salary-wise, money-wise. When it comes to playing Major League Baseball. Now when I look at the NFL. You have the highest paid players being Aaron Rodgers. Who has a $33.5 million average salary. It's not as much as Clayton Kershaw or Mike Trout. But it's close enough. And then you have Matt Ryan, who who got who's getting uh thirty mil per year. And then you have Jimmy G, Jimmy Garoppolo of the San Francisco 49ers, who's gonna get a total guaranteed total guaranteed that and that's about the incentives, all that stuff. Seventy four mil over five five years, his complete contract is five years of 137.5 mil, which goes to 27.5 mil per year. So that, that's still a lot. And then you have Khalil Mack, Aaron Donald, Alex Smith, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Odell Beckham Jr. You have Kirk Cousins in there. Players like that. But... You can kind of see if you know both of these sports and know the players a lot of both of these sports that salary wise it leans over to the football side of things a bit more. Those names and those ten names I just listed off for for the whole NFL list. One two Three, we're not quarterbacks. And those were once-in-a-lifetime talents. Khalil Mack, Aaron Donald, phenomenal defensive players. Once-in-a-lifetime. Shattering, not shattering records, but putting up historical numbers. Odell Beckham Jr. putting up historical numbers. Defensive players and wide receiver. No other defensive player or or wide receiver is making that type of money at all. Aside from maybe Antonio Brown. But then again, once in a generation type talent. You, You look at players like Kirk Cousins. Alex Smith. Jimmy Garoppolo. Those three quarterbacks, 
Their teams did not make the playoffs. Yet they're getting over 25 mil per season. Guaranteed, without the incentives. Without the incentives. So they're making a whole bunch of money for a position that's more and more becoming more and more protect, uh, more and more protected. That's what I meant to say. Protected in the NFL, where they aren't going to get hit as hard. And even if there's something coming towards them, they can take the Tom Brady way of things and just curl up into a ball and just fall down. Just fall down. Curl up into a ball, fall down. Just do that. Like I said, Jimmy Garoppolo, Alex Smith, and Kirk Cousins. Two of those quarterbacks got injured this season. Their teams did not make the playoffs. Kirk Cousins played horrible when it mattered the most. Did not make the playoffs. So for Kyler Murray to make the money in the MLB, Major League Baseball, he would have to be a superstar. Whereas for him to make money in the NFL, he doesn't have to be that great of a player. He does not have to, he does not have to be a great player. He can be a good player. Like Alex Smith or Kirk Cousins or Jimmy Garoppolo. Like one of those guys. And and he can he can get money straight out of the gate. He can be like Joey Bosa. When he got drafted by the Chargers. Because he knows the the reality of the NFL where you're you're gonna get messed up in the head. You probably will, you might. Especially if you're a defensive lineman like Joey Bosa, where it can cause severe brain damage if you're not careful. So Kyler Murray can hold out just like Dre Bosa did and get that get that money. Straight from the straight straight out from college. So I think that he made the right decision. I think he did. Football's football's popularity will only it won't decrease sharply, but it'll Remain the same, roughly around the same. Baseball interest won't change that much, but it's gonna decrease just a bit, especially with more exciting sports, such as or or even more talked about sports. In baseball, uh, I mean not baseball, basketball, football, sports like that. That like it talked about and analyzed a lot more than baseball. So I think that it's a lot... The, the, the road to stardom and fame and money for Kyler Murray is a lot easier is a lot easier through the NFL than through the Major League Baseball system. Now, if that's what he wants, then cool. But if he wanted to be super healthy at retirement from either sport, then baseball would be the way to go. But I can clearly see that's not what he has in mind. It's more of make, making sure that he has long-term financial 
uh, stability. Additionally, I'm not sure if he if he cares about this too much, but he would be the first and only player in the history of sports to be drafted in the first round in the Major League Baseball system and the NFL if he were to be drafted in the first round in this upcoming draft. So that's some food to feed on, some food for thought. So hopefully you guys understood what I was trying to trying to say. Overall, it's gonna it's gonna be. Uh, let me just summarize it really really quickly in just one sentence. It's a lot easier for Kyler Murray. It, it will be a lot easier for Kyler Murray to achieve stardom as well as wealth in the NFL than by playing baseball. Play it that way. Very simple. So, anyways, thank you for listening. It has been the G Truth. If you are listening on any sort of podcasting app, be sure to subscribe or follow, depending on whatever app you're using. Leave any comments down uh, below or reviews down below so that I can see on what I need it, what I need to improve on or what you want me to talk about or my opinion on certain things in sports. Anything. Anything. And I will check and I'll talk about it. So, anyways, thank you. It has been the G-Truth. G-Truth out. Peace.